wrap up Colossians this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Colossians chapter 4. If you, you don't have one, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you, and we'll be on page 1045 in that Bible. Um, as always, we'll try to make some time for Q&R at the end. If you have questions, uh, you can text them to our text number. And uh, last week, one of the questions came in a little bit after we ended. So um, we're working on getting a different system. But uh, if you have a question, send it in early so that it can get up to space and back before we're done. I will uh, pray for us real quick one more time, and then we'll get going. Lord God, thank you for this day uh, that you've made, uh, this opportunity that we have uh, on the first day of the week to gather as your people, the freedom um, that this society affords us to do so. God, the, the promise that, that you have given us that, that there's something special that happens when we gather. This isn't the sum total of our life as followers of Jesus, but it is a significant moment significant rhythm in our week, and I just pray that we would be attentive to your spirit this morning, that we would um, be attentive to the word as we place ourselves under its authority. God, I pray for myself that you would give me your words to speak and, and that um, all the things that I want to say that, that you don't want me to say, would, um, that no one, would just, no one would hear those. God, give us um, just an outpouring of your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Tish Harrison Warren is a columnist. Well, she's an uh, Anglican priest, but she's a columnist for the New York Times, and her latest column, she was talking about community, and she quoted Wendell Berry. And I want to read you what she said. She said, William, or Wendell Berry said that the things we love tend to have proper names. We cannot love the church or the world abstractly. Instead, when we preach and minister to others, we must learn to do so for people with proper names in a place with a proper name. And I love that because it, it speaks to the, just the locality of the church, right? We, we can talk about the church with a big C and think about the church worldwide or the church throughout history or the church in specific de denominations and groups. But what I think is more core to the idea of the church is, is this, this, this group of people that have committed to be a part of one another's lives, gathering in a place, in a time, for a purpose, and the, the funny thing is, is, is that's something that, that causes tension among Christians. You probably know people like this. I, I have a friend who um, I, I had asked her, I'd invited her to our church a number of years ago, and I knew she was a Christian, but, but I, I didn't think she was connected anywhere. And, and I said, you know, you, guys, you should come worship with us. And, and she goes, oh, this, I, I have a church. I, this other church in town is my church. And, and I said, really? What? when do you go? And, and, well, I haven't been there for about three years. It's like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> and and she, she had this idea that she was connected to these people, but, but none of these people really knew her. She, would, she wasn't really a part of that body. And, and I think we, we want sometimes to be connected to things, but not to be really given over to them. But that's not the way God designed us to be as human beings, it's, and it's not the way He built the church to work. All throughout the book of Colossians, and we've been in Colossians for, I don't know, 13 or 14 weeks now, Paul has hammered home this idea that we are in Christ, that Jesus Christ is the supreme uh, being in all of the world. He is the greatest. He is the best. He holds the universe together. And as His people, we exist in Him, identified with Him. And as we finish the book of Colossians this morning, this letter, Paul is going to talk about people, like real people in a local context. And, and I want to say that he's talking about them in a way that helps us understand what it looks like to be people in Christ in relationship to one another. Christian philosopher James K. A. Smith says, 
All the parts of a body are dependent upon other parts and organs in order for the individual parts to function and flourish. It's not only sin that makes us dependent upon others. Our very finitude as creatures impels us to relationality because we need the gifts, talents, and resources of others. And such dependence is part of the very fiber of God's good creation. What Smith says here is is that we are not dependent on one another because of some fault in us. And sometimes we think that, like, man, if, if I was perfect, if I didn't sin, if I didn't have weaknesses, I wouldn't need anyone. But Smith says, no, God created us to need other people. It's, it's a feature, not a bug. And so this morning, I want to take a look at four ways that our dependence on relationships in the church helps us to function and to flourish as Christians. The first thing I want to look at is that we are encouraged by relationships. We're encouraged by relationships. Take a look at verse 7. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts. He's coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother, who is one of you, and they will tell you about everything here. So first of all, we meet Tychicus. Tychicus was somebody, we don't know a whole lot about him, but he is the, uh, the letter carrier. Uh, he's, he's bringing this letter to the Colossians, and he's also bringing it, a letter to the Ephesians. We read about it in, in the letter to Ephesus. And he's somebody that Paul really knows. He's dearly loved. He's a faithful servant. He has this close relationship with Paul. And for Paul to be someone who can say that sort of thing sincerely, it really takes time and relational effort. I don't know if you you know anyone like this, but but I know a few people who are very quick to, like, decide that you're best friends with them. Have you ever met somebody like that? Like, you you meet them a few few times, and then they introduce you to someone, and they tell that person all about how great you are or how you're so kind or generous or whatever. And and, and I just, I, I think, like, you don't know me. Like, you're just... You're just making stuff up to flatter me. But I don't think Paul's doing that. I think Paul has a really deep relationship with Tychicus, and he can say in sincerity, hey, this guy, he's a good guy. And then we meet Onesimus. We talked about Onesimus a little bit earlier when we were talking about slaves, but Onesimus is a slave who belongs to the household of Philemon. And if you read the book of, to the letter to Philemon, you get a more back, little bit more backstory about him. But he's coming back to Colossae with the letter. And he's also dearly loved by Paul. And we learn in the letter to Philemon that Onesimus has been in prison with Paul in some way. We don't know all the details. But there's something about common purpose that unites you to people. Like if you've, if you've ever gone like on a foreign mission trip, you get like 20 or 30 people together and they go to Mexico for a week and they come back different, right? They come back, they come back bonded because, you know, I had to hold your hair while you threw up in that ugly toilet because we ate something on the, with some street food that was not great. And now we're connected to each other in, in a way that we weren't connected before. Or we did ministry together, or we saw God move together. And, and these experiences bond people together. Maybe you were a part of an intense work project with somebody where like you were assigned at your company to do a thing and you had to work a bunch of overtime to get it done. And and because of that, you bonded with a person in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. There's a really fun musical called Come From Away, which is about um, something that happened in 2001 in Gander, Newfoundland, um, when the Twin Towers were hit. American airspace was completely shut down. And so all of the air traffic that was in the air was diverted to other airports. And there was this little airport in Gander, Newfoundland in Canada that got all of these big planes. And this little tiny town, and this Come From Away is this musical that's describing the story. This little tiny town had to just kick itself into overdrive to prepare for all of these foreign passengers that were going to land for who knows how long. And they spent several days just caring for hundreds and hundreds of people that had been stranded there. 
And this town is, you know, they had one school and one little medical clinic, and, and, and the, the musical tells the story of the townspeople rallying to support these people in this crisis. And at the end of the musical, it kind of reprises uh, the story by, by saying that 10 years later, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, all of these people these passengers and these townspeople and, and these, these business travelers that were stranded there, they all made a point to go back to Gander for a reunion because they had been shaped by that experience in powerful ways. And Onesimus and Paul, they didn't, they didn't have a long history with each other, but they had a powerful history together because they were in prison together and they experienced life together in impactful ways. And so Tychicus and Onesimus are commissioned to go to Colossae and they're given a job. They're they're given a job to encourage the Colossians with news about Paul. And that's kind of funny because Paul's still in prison, right? He's He's not doing well by worldly standards. But that's not the news that Paul is excited about Tychicus and Onesimus telling, is it? It's it's the good news, the fact that he has doors that have been opened up for the gospel, the fact that God is meeting his needs, the fact that even in his suffering and his weakness, God is good. But we we don't think about that very often, I'm afraid. We're, we're so quick to share bad news, right? Like you, you, get, you get with somebody and you just, this thing happened and you can't, you just wouldn't believe what happened on the way to work today. Or did you hear about that thing that happened in the other side of the country that's awful? And there's this like adrenaline rush to talk about bad news. And it's, studies have actually shown that our brain lights up in more significant ways when we are learning about bad news than when we are experiencing good news. Think about these news headlines. Billions of people are alive and well today. Another day goes by that a meteor did not strike our planet. Mortality rates and poverty rates continue to drop at ridiculous rates. Literacy continues to rise at a never-before-seen pace. Like, I'm not clicking on those headlines. Right? That's, that, I don't need to read that article. That seems boring. But these are kingdom of God headlines, right? These are, these are realities that are, that are moving in the direction that God is taking the universe. But we tend to find that uninteresting. We want to talk about bad news. We want to be entertained by what's going wrong in the world. But we need to be people that have our hearts reshaped so that we rejoice in good things. And even though things might seem bad for Paul, Tychicus and Onesimus have encouraging things to say. All kinds of good, beautiful things are happening in Paul's life. And the Colossian church should be encouraged by it. I think the question for us is we think about our relationships in the body of Christ. Do we have people who can see bad circumstances and bring encouragement to them? Sometimes those people are annoying, right? Because, because again, we want to like mourn and, and be sad and like be grumpy and cynical about stuff. And you have a friend that's like, yeah, but look at the bright side. No, shut up. I don't want to look at the bright side. But we need that. We need to be able to see God working in the midst of hard, dark things. And and people who can bring that encouragement are a gift to the body of Christ. So we're encouraged through relationships, but we're also served through relationships. Look at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you and for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. 
Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. So a couple of people we don't know a lot about. We don't know a lot about Aristarchus. We don't know a lot about Jesus' justice. I understand, though, if your name is Jesus and you become a Christian, that you would change your name to Justice because that's it's weird. Hi, I'm Jesus, not that one. You know, that's, that's an awkward thing to do every single time you meet someone. But some of these other people are really interesting in the way that they model service in the church. First of all, Mark. Mark is a traveling missionary. Mark is uh, a follower of Jesus who wrote the gospel, called the gospel according to Mark. And the church at Colossae gets the privilege of exercising hospitality towards him. When Mark shows up, treat him well. And that hospitality is this virtue that the church has that is really important in Scripture. And what it means is hospitality we often think is, is just like hanging out with people. But it, it doesn't mean hanging out with your friends. It means welcoming strangers. Paul is saying, I expect you to have the resources to meet the needs of this person that is traveling through your city. There would be an expectation as a, as a Christian missionary or a pastor or a leader came through that the church would give them a place to stay, would feed them. I was reading, a, there's, a, there's a church document called the Didache, which was written about uh, 40-ish years after Paul was alive, and, and it's a bunch of instructions about how to run the church, and, and in that he says, if, if a traveling missionary comes through, you need to give them hospitality for three days, and if they want to stay longer, they're a false prophet, which I think is super funny. <laughs> but the expectation is that we would be people that open our homes, open our lives to the needs of others. And I think this is great because in my mind, and not, not everybody's like this, but I think it, it feels really inappropriate to ask people to, for things. I think a lot of us are built this way. We have these needs, and it'd be great if we could have other people meet, help us meet our needs, but we're just, maybe we're proud that we don't want people to know our needs. Maybe, maybe we just don't want to burden people. Somebody, some of us have that, like, real deep sense of, like, not wanting to inconvenience others. But for whatever reason, we often don't share our needs. But look at the gift that Paul gives Mark. He shares Mark's need for him. He asks on his behalf. And this is such an important ministry in the church. When, when God gives you insight into the needs of others, maybe, maybe you're being called to meet that need for them. Maybe you're being called to make the connections that they're unable to make so that their needs get met. When Mark gets there, take care of his needs. Another person in this list, Epaphras. Epaphras is probably the, the man that planted the churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. Uh, these three towns are like, like the tri-cities. They're these three little villages near a river, and they're very close to each other. And Paul says, you know what, Epaphras, he loves you guys so much, and he wrestles for you in his prayers he works hard for the people he serves. There's this classic, you know, uh, pastor joke where, where somebody says, oh, it's Sunday. It's the one day a week that the pastor works. And that's funny. But, <laughs> but the, the reality is <laughs> leading a community of Christians is a lot of work. Eugene Peterson talks about the work of the pastor in three separate spheres. He says, uh, the pastor is, is responsible for teaching. He's responsible for spiritual direction. And he's responsible for prayer. And, and these are three priorities that I've really tried to embody as I do my job uh, on behalf of this community. I want to be, be a good teacher. I want to study. I want to be in the lives of all of us. And I want to help us figure out how to follow Jesus together. That's what spiritual direction is. We're all working towards being more like Christ, and I get the privilege of uh, leading the way in some sense. And then I want to be somebody who prays. I want prayer to be a significant part of my role. And, you know, if, I, if I'm busy, if I'm not going to finish my to-do list this week, 
prayer had better not be the thing that I skip. Epaphras wrestles for his people in prayer. That's so important. And it's such a powerful way to serve. And it's not just a job for pastors, parents. Do you wrestle for your kids in prayer? Community group leaders, do you wrestle for your groups in prayer? Sunday school teachers, do you wrestle for the kids that you lead in prayer? Prayer is so important. And Paul says Epaphras is such a warrior in prayer. And he says Luke. Luke's with him. Luke is uh, the author of the gospel according to Luke and also the book of Acts. And Luke, Luke has skills. Luke's a doctor. And that's a big deal for Paul. Like Roman prison is not like American prison. Roman prison doesn't care if you die. Like they're not going to feed you. They're not going to give you fresh clothing. They don't have a gym or a library. They're not going to help you get your bachelor's degree. Like, none of that is happening in Roman prison. They're going to throw you in a cell, and they're going to leave you there. And if anyone is going to take care of you, it's going to be your friends. And the fact that Luke, a medical doctor, is with Paul is a huge benefit to Paul. Because if Paul gets sick or he gets injured, nobody's there There's no staff doctor at the prison to help him. And I think this is really important when when we think about service in the church because we tend to uh, compartmentalize these things. We have have spiritual work, you know, the things that pastors and missionaries do, and then we have, like, secular work, which is what, like, non-called normal people do. And that's a false dichotomy because all of the work that we do is for the benefit of of the flourishing of society and for the benefit of the church. In in Genesis 1, we get our job description as human beings. It says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth. And we are called to work, not as, it's not a consequence of sin, as some of us might think. It is part of how we express the image of God in us in our ruling over creation. Tim Keller says, work is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. So Luke, as a medical doctor, he's bringing order to the chaos, just like his creator, God, does, because he is made in God's image. And setting aside the fact that, you know, Luke is responsible for writing more of the Bible than anyone else in the New Testament, his abilities as a doctor in and of themselves are really important. The way he serves people as a doctor is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a calling. It's a vocation from the Lord. So we should be people that that speak, that share our faith, that pray, that utilize our supernatural spiritual gifts, all of those things, but don't discount the goodness and the appropriateness of your specific calling if it doesn't immediately feel spiritual. When I was very young, we moved to Coeur d'Alene from Yakima, Washington, because my dad wanted to buy a Roto-Rooter franchise, and he didn't. He, he, he tells me the story of how he had to go to the library and check out plumbing books because he had no idea how to do any of that thing. But it was very good for our family, and I got to go with him when I was young. He'd pick me up from school, and we'd drive around in the pump truck. And you guys, that's holy work. <laughs> when, when your toilet does not work... That is who you call, and it is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a godly thing. No matter what God has called you to do, it can be good, holy work. And Luke 
is serving the church, not by being a preacher or a pastor or a missionary, but by being a doctor. Then we, then we learn about Nympha. Nympha is probably, she's either probably a widow who has inherited her husband's fortune, or she's a single businesswoman with a large home. She lives in Laodicea, and she opens up her home for the meetings of the church. And this is something that we all have different experiences with. Some of us have, especially in this this season that we're in uh, with our economy, some of us are really struggling financially. Others of us have a lot of stuff. Some of us have lots of money or possessions. And we tend to believe, many of us, and our culture instructs us in this way, that the things that we have, they belong to us. And they're ours to use however we see fit. But the reality is, is the things that we have, whether we have a little or we have a lot, they belong to God. And God wants to share them. Our culture trains us to be so out of alignment with the historic Christian faith in this regard. Listen to a couple of our predecessors in the faith. John Calvin says, everyone should think that he owes himself to his neighbors and that the only limit to his generosity is the end of his resources. Man, that's a heavy word, isn't it? That like we have an obligation to people, and when that obligation ends is when we don't have any more stuff. Basel the Great, way back uh, in the first part of the, uh, well, the first millennium, he says, the bread which you hold back belongs to the hungry, the coat which you guard in your lock storage chests belongs to the naked. The footwear moldering, that means uh, wearing out, in your closet belongs to those without shoes. The silver that you keep hidden in a safe place belongs to the one in need. Thus, however many are those whom you could have provided for, so many are those whom you wrong. And again, that's a heavy word that if you've just got stuff sitting around It belongs to people who don't have anything. That's really convicting to me because I think most of us have more stuff probably that we don't even know what to do with. Many of us own storage units where we can store the stuff that we can't keep at our house. And, And Basil says, that doesn't really belong to me. And since it's just sitting there not being used, I'm actually robbing the poor of it. I'm not really sure what to do about that or with that. It's something to wrestle with, though. Are there ways that we are not utilizing the things that we've been given for the good of others? I learned many years ago from Pastor Andy Stanley, he said, um, never own something that you're unwilling to let someone borrow. I think about that a lot. Is is there something in my life that's so precious to me that you can't, I couldn't give it to you. You, What if you broke it? What if you didn't treat it well? And I I just think like, man, man, when when that feeling bubbles up in me, I'm not, I'm not in alignment with the heart of God. Like God wants us to be generous. And, And Nympha, Nympha has a big house, and she opens up her house to the church. There's probably 30, 40, maybe 50 people in her home every week, and she has the resources to provide for them. And Paul commends her for giving her possessions away. So, all through there, we see people that are equipped and called in very different ways with different gifts to serve the church. So, the question for us is, how are we individually being called to serve others? And that's going to look different for everybody, right? The next thing we can look at is that we are instructed in relationships. Verse 16 says, after this letter has been read at your gathering have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Okay, so side note, what's the letter to the Laodiceans? We don't have that in our Bibles. And so there's a couple theories. 
The first one is that maybe Paul's talking about a letter that the Laodiceans sent to him, and it was such a good letter that he's saying the Colossians should read it too. That's one theory. Another theory is that it might be a lost letter, that Paul wrote another letter to the church at Laodicea, and we just don't have it. And that's a possibility that that's not the only time that we would be missing a letter from Paul. In 1 Corinthians 5, we, we read, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, that's in 1 Corinthians. So, 1 Corinthians is not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He talks about a different letter that he had already written to the Corinthians. And we don't have that one. So it could be that the letter to the Laodiceans is a letter we just don't have anymore. A third possibility, which I think is super intriguing, is that the letter to the Laodiceans might actually be the letter to the Ephesians. The uh, Ephesians 1.1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. But the problem is a lot of the early copies of the letter to the Ephesians that we have don't have the words at Ephesus in them. All the way up to the, like the fourth century, we have uh, manuscripts of the letter of the Ephesians and those words aren't in there. And so it's possible that the letter that we call the letter to the Ephesians was actually written to the Laodiceans, and it would have been taken by Tychicus, the same man who's delivering the letter to the Colossians, to the neighboring city of Laodicea. Okay, end of side note. (laughs) Here's the thing about this. Most of the interactions the Colossians have with the Scripture is in community. See, nobody's getting up at, you know, six in the morning to brew some coffee and open their study Bibles for their quiet time. Like, that's not how it would have worked. We are so, so blessed to have so many resources for knowing and reading the Word of God. The Colossians, they probably had a Old Testament that they kept at the church because it was written by hand and would have been worth thousands of dollars. I was reading... um, a while back that it probably cost Paul about $3,000 in today's money to write the, book, the letter to the Romans, to actually get it written and sent. So writing back then was so expensive and so precious. And the Colossian church, not, nobody has a Bible. Nobody's doing private Bible study. They're learning from the Scriptures in community. And so Paul says, hey, when you get this letter, read it learn it, understand it, but then also make sure you get the letter from Laodicea and give them a copy of this letter because it's important. The early Christians, they studied the Word of God in community. And the implication there is that this book that we put ourselves under is bigger than us individually right? See, Paul assumes that the things that he communicates to the Colossians will also apply to the Laodiceans and vice versa. And we understand that because we're reading the letter to the Colossians, right? We're learning from it. But we often approach the Scriptures and say, what does the Bible have to say to me? But sometimes a better question is, what does the Bible have to say to us? How is this text, how is this Word of God actually applying to us as a people, as a community? We're all coming under its authority together, and it makes significant claims on all of us as Christians in community. And so we get to remind each other of it. We get to hold each other accountable to it. The Scriptures shape our lives together. And so the question for us here is, how are we allowing the Scriptures to speak to us in our relationships with others? Do we have people in our lives that we can study the Bible with, that we can learn from, that maybe have different experiences, that are older or younger or from a a different background, that can see the text and and not change the meaning because the Word of God has one meaning, but say, like, this is is how this applies in my life. Well, maybe, maybe I've never thought about it that way. So we learn 
and we're instructed in relationship. And the last point that I have this morning is that we are exhorted by relationships. Verse 17, we read, tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. Archippus is one of the leaders in the church that meets at Philemon's house. I just think, can you imagine being at church and getting a letter from the Apostle Paul and he calls you out by name? I think, I don't know, I might, I might go hide if that was what happened to me. But, but he does. Paul calls him out. Hey, Archippus, you have a job to do. You need to get on that. This is what we call the gift of exhortation. If you've been in our community groups this last season, we talked about spiritual gifts. And one of the things we talked about a lot was some of us have certain gifts. We all have gifts of some kind. But some of us have certain gifts, and those of us that don't have those gifts, we get to be disciplined in learning how to do those things. And so some of you are gifted exhorters. You have this ability to just speak into a situation, sometimes a hard word, but it's, it's, taken, it's taken as an invitation to holiness. But even if you don't have that gift, I think we're all called to exhort one another at some point in our lives, when we see something in someone and go, you know what? I'm really sensing the Lord saying that you should be fill in the blank. There are times when we need to give each other a little push. One of the things that um, I talked about, if if you were at our, our annual members meeting in January, one of the things I said about our church in this season is that we have, we are, we are led by a plurality of elders. And the elders uh, oversee the church, um, and they are currently myself and three other men who we call provisional elders. And they, they are leaders in churches in our association, but they're not members of our church. And that the goal would be that they would roll off the board and that they would be replaced by men in our congregation who are called to lead in that way. And I encouraged us to especially many of you men, to search your heart and see, is that something that maybe God is calling you to do? And one of the members of our church came up to me afterwards, and she said, hey, I'm, I'm a little confused because, like, what about... And then she just started rattling off names of the men in our church. What about them? And what, couldn't they be an elder? And, like, what? And, and I said, you know what? You should go tell them. And she did, I think. Some of you got a conversation with, with our friend Corey, and she uh, exhorted you. And that's up to you to do what you want with that. But what she, what she was doing is she sensed, hey, there's a, lot, there's a lot in this room that God can use. I see something in your life that's untapped. Consider this. Pray about this. And she took action. Because the chances are other people will see God in your life before you do. Other people will see your gifts and your abilities and maybe your calling before you do. Not always, but often. And we all need this. I need this. You need this. Because we all have a tendency to drift. Things get hard. We get hurt. We're tired. I need people in my life that will remind me of my calling and my gifting and give me a push towards getting it done. And that only happens if people actually know me, right? Have you, have you ever been exhorted by somebody that you don't know? Like, who are you? you don't, don't talk to me. Don't tell me. You don't know me, right? Like, that's not helpful. But when you trust people, when you have deep relationships with people and they say, hey, I really feel like the Lord is telling me to tell you this, Oh, that changes things. Then your ears perk up and you listen, hopefully, if if you're walking in the Spirit and you realize, oh, maybe God has something to say to me today. So the questions for us here is, do, do we know people well enough to exhort us? Are there people in your life that would feel like they had the permission to tell you something, maybe a hard thing, 
for your benefit. And then on the other side of that, is there something that you're holding on to that you're sensing God is really telling me I need to speak to this person about, but you're afraid or you just don't don't know what's going to happen, but you need to tell that person. You need to encourage them. You need to give them a little push, an exhortation. So we, we get to the end of this book. And we get a reminder that we are a community of people. We are relationally connected to one another. We are not, uh, we are not islands unto ourselves. And we see examples in this list of greetings at the end of the letter to the Colossians of encouragement, of service, of instruction, and of exhortation. And I think these are the kinds of things, this is the kind of community that we are called to embody. And in every single one of those categories, that's not always easy. There are times where you don't want to be encouraging. You want to just kind of marinate in bad news because it somehow feels good. We have to get past that. We don't want to serve. We want to be selfish. We want to have our own time. We want to be left alone. We want our things to belong to us only. We don't want to receive instruction from others. We want to have a, pro- a completely private Christian experience. And we don't want to be exhorted. And yet, as I continue to walk with Jesus, all of those things, while sometimes hard, are always life-giving. And if this has happened to you, you know this. You know that the community of God's people working the way it's meant to work is refreshing and energizing and spirit-filled. And so that's just the encouragement as we end this book this morning is that we have the opportunity because we are not the church, we are a church. We are a group of Christians. We are following Jesus in this place, in this time, and we have the opportunity to pour ourselves out to one another and to be poured into ourselves. And it's a gift. And I hope we're all people that take that seriously and rejoice in it and make use of the gifts that we've been given. Oh, so I heard the phone beep, so there's some questions. Let's see what this says. Ooh, there's another one. How can, should we combat the information overload from the world that is so loud, social media, media in general, and as a community, stay more focused every day on what God's Word tells us? Should we as individuals cut out media? Do others struggle with this? It seems many of us do, but I'm not sure. Wild to think that this church receiving this letter would probably be really meditating on these words, and as they live together day in and day out, I imagine it would stir up radical change in their lives. It seems that we're missing that. Wow, that's a really astute observation. Um, yeah, I think we should cut media out of our lives. <laughs> like, I mean, for I, I think most... Most of what we do on our phones, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok is just toxic. Like, I just think it's terrible. And does that mean you should just completely erase it from your life? Maybe. It depends on who you are. If you find yourself addicted to it, if you find yourself like, I just can't get away from it. I've gone through a process over the years of of wanting to be less connected to my social media accounts and then coming up with a bunch of reasons why I can't possibly not have Facebook because, you know, I'll miss my second cousin's, you know, wedding announcement or whatever. And I just finally had to go like, that's not important enough to sacrifice my sanity. It's not important enough to sacrifice my peace. If, If these things just continually cause you anxiety and stress, they are bad for you. And so personally, I, I still have a Twitter account. I, this, this is more than anybody cares to know, but I have a third-party app that filters it chronologically for me and takes out all the ads so that it can't manipulate me with its algorithms, uh, I think. <laughs> and I've 
I've unfollowed everyone that is anxiety-inducing. So it's all uh, New Testament scholars. It's just, it's so boring. <laughs> but that's the only kind of social media I can handle. But yeah, if, if you find yourself depressed or anxious or constantly scrolling your phone, cut it out. Treat it like, treat it like an illicit drug, because it almost is, and just kill it, because it is bad for you. Just read Colossians more. <laughs> if we're supposed to think about encouraging things, doesn't it seem counterproductive for God to allow His children to suffer? If He doesn't want us to be sad, then why, uh, then why bring about circumstances that are painful? Oh, that's a good question. I think one of the be- beautiful things about walking through hard stuff is that when, when things are not difficult, we are self-sufficient people. When things are, when things are easy, when things are good, we begin to think that we have figured out a system, that we have gifts and talents and abilities that can get stuff done. And when things get hard, all of that like mirage that we live in just fades away. We realize that we do not have it all together, that we are anxious and worried and we don't have enough money and our health is terrible and whatever the thing is, we don't have any control over it. And so in that moment, and, and this, isn't, this isn't the way it's always going to be because if you read the, read the end of the book, when, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom and he wipes all our tears from our eyes, this is not forever, but in this moment, for some reason in God's d- divine plan, he's decided that we understand who God is and how good He is and how powerful He is and how much He wants to be the center of our lives more more greatly when we suffer. And so if we suffer and we use that suffering to grow bitter and angry and be mad and cynical and turn in on ourselves, then we've wasted our suffering. Because the opportunity we have when we suffer, whether it's, whether it's a head cold or cancer or anything in between, the opportunity that we have when we suffer is to reorient ourselves and go, you know what, who, who is actually bringing me peace? Who is actually bringing me satisfaction? Who do I actually have my identity in? It's in Christ. And that's the gift of suffering, and I think that's the goal of suffering. And so, to say God doesn't want us to be sad is, is kind of true, because one day we will no longer be sad. But today, in His providence, in His wisdom, He's decided the best way for us to become more like Jesus is to experience periods of time where things are not good, so that we can practice rejoicing in the midst of those things because of who God is. And I think that's a really important thing to be reminded of when we are suffering, is that God has a purpose in it. Okay. I think that's all of them. Good questions. I was at a wedding last night, and... um, it was a good friend got married. Joanne and I went, and and they did the thing where they, uh, in the middle of the ceremony, the music plays and they turn around and they took communion together while everybody watched. And uh, when when Joanne and I got married, we that was a that was something that was was done, and 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 we thought, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're not going to we're not going to take communion in front of all those people. We'll just buy some bread and some wine and, and take it to the hotel afterwards and take communion all by ourselves together. And as I've, as I've grown, this was 20 years ago, <laughs> as I've grown, I don't think I would do that again. My understanding of the communion meal has changed. And as we, as we take communion this morning, it's important to remember that we take communion as a people as the people of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless 
Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. And for your convenience, uh, we've, we've pre-broken the bread, um, but it was one bread, symbolizing the fact that we are one community in Christ who has one body. And the symbolism of the communion meal is that it connects us to each other because we all are nourished by the same elements. Because we are one body. The, the thing about like, if you ever look at bacteria colonies under a microscope, there are all these little circles and they're completely independently functioning, right? They just happen to like live next to each other. But that's not who we are. We aren't, we aren't a bunch of individuals that just kind of conglomerate together every so often and then disperse into our own lives. We are the body of Christ, and we are each a part of that body, and we exist in relationship to one another. And so as we take communion this morning, I would just invite you to take the bread and the cup. We have wine or juice per the convictions of your conscience. Take it back to your seat just think about the broken body and the shed blood of Christ and, and ask God to show you what your place is in the body. You are not an island. You are not, uh, you are not a just solitary Christian that happens to bump into other solitary Christians every so often. You are an integral part of what God is doing in this place, in this city, in this time that we live. And I would just encourage you, if, if, there, if there are ways that you feel like God is saying, hey, you're not engaging the way you should, just deal with that. Confess that sin and, and, and seek ways to move forward out of that. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and, and just commit yourself to making changes, not in your own power, not because it's something that you have to offer, but because of who He is and how He lives inside of you. And as always, the, uh, if, you, if you want to move around while we sing, you can, you can sit or stand, you can come up and pray on the prayer rugs. Um, just spend some time as we worship, reflecting on who Christ is, reflecting on who He's called you to be in the body, and just worship Him as we worship together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.